Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Miriam Knight Show, where we explore the many faces of consciousness in action. As the publisher of New Consciousness Review, I get to review many of the latest books and films having the greatest impact on the global awakening and interview their authors here. As someone who is passionate about books, I really hit the jackpot with a sumptuous volume from today's guest, Timothy Wiley. Timothy is a writer and artist who specializes in the study of non-human intelligences. He was born and raised in England, and he was trained as an architect in London, where he also co-founded an international spiritual community. He moved to America in the late 60s, building a house of his own design in the high desert of New Mexico. He's the author of numerous works on non-human intelligence. His first book, Dolphins, ETs, and Angels, was published by Bear and Company in 1984, and it's still in print. It's considered a classic in its field. He also co-authored Ask Your Angels that became an international bestseller and has been translated into 12 languages. Timothy is the author of the highly acclaimed Rebel Angels series, which is going to be numbering eight books, I believe. I dare say that all of these books inform Timothy's first fictional work, which is the one we will discuss today. It's called The Heliang's Proposition, or The Return of the Rainbow Serpent, a cosmic creation fable, and it's published by Origin Press. Welcome, Timothy. I'm glad we finally connected. Well, thank you, Miriam. That was a, that was a wonderful uh, introduction. Uh, very, very complete. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, to, it's an interesting thing when you say fiction. I, I, I'm not quite sure in the kind of area that we I, we deal in. You know, the, the fact and fiction have a very strange way of of kind of moving together. You can sometimes learn more from fiction than you can from fact. And you get dowed to reality by fact more than you can by fiction. It's a funny one, isn't it? I, I personally don't think of my Heliang's proposition as really kind of fiction because it came to me in one unbroken stream of writing. It was almost like, I mean, almost like, um, automatic writing. So, really? You know, it's, it's, my goodness. Kind of now, now, which part? Because the book has a really fascinating format. You have on the left-hand side of the page quite a complete narrative. And on the right-hand side of the page, you have these most elegant, beautiful illustrations, really um, like illuminated manuscripts. And then you have just a kind of cliff notes, sort of an illuminated cliff notes version of the stuff on the left-hand side. Now, is which, which bit came to you in this unbroken stream? Well, what came to me in the unbroken stream is what I call the text, which is all everything on the right hand, the right hand side. And when it came through, because you know, I was thinking to my, I was at a period in my life when you know I was mulling over some sort of serious sort of religious and spiritual issues, and thinking about the strange anomaly of the Garden of Eden. Even as a fable, it's a strange one, you know, because we get the action between Adam and Eve, but then we get this strange talking serpent, you know, wherever did that come from, you know? And not only talk the talking serpent, but a serpent who talk with a certain sense, you know. Um, quite a lot of sense, actually. 
said, my question was, before I went into my meditation, was, well, who was this serpent in the Garden of Eden? Let's, let's have a think about it. And my, as I said, my hand started going, moving along. And I started watching it, and you know, some of the stuff I kind of recognized, and some of the stuff was sort of pulled from my vocabulary or from the little I knew. And it just went on and on, so as I say, for about three or four hours. And this, um, what turned out to be a kind of an 80-page document came out of this, you know, and I thought, hmm, you know, this is very interesting. I don't know what it all means, but why can't I spend the next, as long as it takes time. And I'm an artist by, by avocation, so I thought I'd illustrate each page. And so I, I took each, I divided the manuscript down, and I took each page out, and I divided it out into the 80 pages of the book. And I then went ahead and illustrated them, and then I invented a, uh, a special font that I call Lizard Script. <laughs> and I kind of it took me another four, three or four years to do that. So when you say illustrated manuscript, I'm very touched, Miriam. That's exactly the impression I, I would like to aspire to, to follow in that tradition. And then, because this whole process took 30 years from conception to, to you know, the printed version, uh, so the last sort of eight or ten years were writing, as you say, on the left-hand side, which is, is kind of a commentary, almost a Talmudic commentary that I would kind of... I had done all the drawings, I'd done all the writing, so I would kind of meditate on each page, and then this stuff would flow in. And as I say, I can't really call it fiction, because I can't call it fact, but it has a sort of... Well, what do you think? It has sort of substance to it, doesn't it? It has something to it. Well, well it's more than substance. It's um, actually uh, logically holds together. I, I think I need to tell our readers, uh, our listeners, that the book covers, and I might say quite convincingly, the cosmology of the entire universe, indeed of the multiverse, from the very origins through Adam and Eve meeting the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And it's both enchanting and it makes sense. It holds together as a narrative of creation. And when you say that it's fiction but not quite fiction, I can totally believe it because it just makes such sense. When, when, um, when read against books like um, I don't know, The Gods of Eden, the Urantia books, uh, the, uh, the Sitchin books. It, it pulls together elements of the, uh, the backstory of humanity that kind of oozes through the cracks of, of um, modern literature. I'm so thrilled to hear you say, I must say, uh, I, I, I'm really thrilled, really taken aback that you have taken so much from this. Um, you know, I, I, know it's, I know it's a rich vein, but in many ways I'm still too close to it. I mean, it's, it was a 30-year gestation, and, and that's a long time to hold a baby. <laughs> so I'm still pretty <laughs> close to it. And it really touches my heart that you have seen so deeply into it, because yes, I think it really does pull a lot of things together. And, you know, it's a funny thing about about the, going back to this fiction fact business, because obviously, you know, if we go back, say, further than 10,000 years, 10,000 years BC, anything that anybody writes is essentially pretty much speculation. So 
why why don't we you know why don't we feel into it and see if there's such a thing as deep memory if there's such a thing as you know the memory that we can we can claim in our genetic code that we can actually get into somehow through meditation through trance you know through music find our way into that and, and let's tell stories from that point of view you know rather than telling stories about you know, people getting divorced and stuff so I'd love you. I'd love you to elaborate on that idea of deep memory because obviously the the heliacs kind of relates or refers to the DNA helix, the the serpent toast. Um, in fact, how did you conceptualize the being of our hero slash heroine, um, the heliacs? Oh, that's a, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a very, well, it's a very profound and very personal story. Um, it goes back to my early twenties when I was in a meditation and, um, reality as it sometimes does in meditation is completely dissolved. And there above me hovering, I saw this enormous, um, oh, it, it was, it was it wasn't glass exactly, but it was an enormous sort of transparent bowl hanging in the air. And I didn't think it was a flight horse or anything like that, and I didn't open my eyes, you know, I was just watching this. And I could just see this, this sort of, what looked like an equally transparent creature curled inside this bowl. This was enormous, absolutely enormous. I mean, you know, covered from left to right of my visual field. Anyway, and after I came out of my meditation, I went, my goodness, what was that? And I, I never knew what that was. I had no idea what that was. Many years later, something else happened in the meditation, and the words, the Heliangs, came to me. I had no idea what it was, what it meant, not a clue. So when I came to uh, write this uh, initial draft of the Heliangs proposition, um, in a sense, that was almost like a sort of a subconscious or superconscious continuation of that particular process that I've been going through for, well, at that point, sort of 30 years, I suppose. And there were other sort of little other things that popped in. For instance, I was always drawn to snakes. I had a, a, I had a snake once. Uh, I'm in the house that I'm in because a snake guided me here. So, you know, I, I'm a kind of snaky kind of guy. <laughs> I had a kind of natural interest in the snake who, who talked such sense. So I guess that's what, that's what really initiated it. Um, so in a sense, for even writing the story was an attempt to, to discover something about myself because I'm sure I'm talking to many in your, your audience there and I'm sure to you as well. You know, I felt different all my life from my, my relatives, from my family. You know, for most of my friends, and over the years, you know, I've managed to sort of find there are people, you know, I can talk to and who resonate with me and that I can resonate with, and I've always been curious about that. You know, is this like wrong with me? I'm not quite, can I fit into the human groove? Or is there something else going on? And the healing proposition was probably my first attempt, probably, more subconsciously than consciously, to kind of grapple with this. Was there something in my genes that made me just see the world slightly differently from, from most of the people around me? Um, well, you know, I'm 74, you know, which is quite a long time to examine this particular thing. And I've come up with other conclusions as I've grown older. But um, I guess that was the, that was the initial 
No way, the heroine, I don't know where that came from. I can only imagine it must have come internally like the rest of it. Mm. No way is is almost like um, Noah, the the French form of Noah, uh, because in fact the the uh, I guess the, the the community of the Heliangs was like an ark preserving them. Yes, yes. I mean, yes. I, I don't want to give away. Oh, no, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Very good. I mean, the basic concept is, you know, of a, of, a, of a creature from another, another universe, another super universe, who arrives here uh, from a, a world that has, unfortunately, uh, fallen foul of a nearby um, solar explosion, which had evaporated the water. And these creatures were enormous. I, mean, I believe something in the region of our miles, about two miles long enormous creatures and they lived in the water so anyway it's a long long story from finally getting one of them down on this planet who has to shrink over, over millions of years to make herself sort of compatible with the, kind of the local flora and fauna and the idea the central idea basically is somewhere in the mitochondria of the uh, the cell uh, is the coating that she has placed there and when we reach a certain stage in our development, as both as individuals and perhaps as societies, that particular coding awakens, and we begin to see things perhaps more, you know, more broadly, more, uh, you know, the picture in the way that perhaps no way it once did see the picture. Mm -hmm. you know, well, that certainly speaks to the the notion of the the awakening, the shift that's happening on planet Earth today. Consciousness seems to be central to all aspects of the story. Talk to us about group or collective consciousness versus the process of individuation. Yes, that's a very interesting one. Um, yes, I mean, within the sort of no-way metaphor, I mean, she came from basically a collective consciousness. But the collective consciousness also has its problems, you know, because it tends to become... Um, you know, rather sort of dependent. Um, I think to look at it in an ideal way, and this is what I can see in dolphins, for instance, because a lot of my early work was done with swimming with dolphins, and with a dolphin you have a collective consciousness, but you also have the ability to be able to break off and individuate because they come and they'll swim around you and they'll make very individual contact with you and then they'll be back in the group consciousness. I think there is a hint in there of where we're going to be going. And that is, well, as we lose our defensiveness, as we lose the fears that we surround ourselves with, the paranoia, and we become open to the world, open to the universe, open to other people, then out of that, I think, flows a natural, first a natural empathy, and then a natural telepathy comes out of that. Now, obviously, telepathy also has its problems. How do you shut it down? You know, can you, can you hold stuff back? Is holding stuff back discourteous? I mean, it's a very interesting area to examine, because I'm quite sure we are moving into a telepathic era. I'm sure of that. And we have these areas, electronic substitutions, in a sense, which are preparing us in many ways for it. But you suggest in the book that there's sort of an inverse relationship between ego and telepathy. 
that's a tricky one because it isn't so much <coughs> excuse me it isn't so much ego as being in opposition to that what is necessary is that we master the ego it isn't that we get rid of it it's that we know how to use it because obviously if you begin to uh, you know if you meditate and leave your body you're going to have to have courage you're going to have to have a basic ego to be able to be able to do that but to have the flexibility to be able to put the ego aside because there are other things that are more important right now. That's really what we're looking at. And I think, you know, um, I have no doubt that uh, extraterrestrials capable of, of telepathic contact also have egos, um, but they have, you know, reached a probably, in most cases, one hopes anyway, um, a higher stage of mastership of those, those egos. Although some haven't, I must say. This this relationship between um, the sort of march of uh, evolution, particularly on this planet, and the um, emergence of individuation and ego. Um, so, would you say that telepathy is sort of the um, the uh, end point or, or the next stage? For us all? Well, for us all, I, I, I can't speak for, but yes, I do think that we're going in that direction. I think mm -hmm. if I look back over the course of my life, having kind of moved in this realm for some time, I can kind of see that, that there is a definite line between um, pushing oneself in situations where one has to experience the ego in order to understand it. You know, we can't suppress the ego. The ego has to be let out. Um, and, um, and then, of course, we experience it. We say, well, you know, is this, is this something we want to uh, indulge in or not? I think that, that's the direction we're giving it. It's just that right now, we're really caught in a sort of a third chakra, you know, power ego state. I think as a, as a civilization, if nothing else, because obviously, Civilizations also evolve and, and mature, as individuals do, and different countries evolve to different levels of maturity within them. You know, and I think, for instance, America is fairly clear, is pretty much sort of moving, trying to move out of the third chakra, the, the power, you know, into the heart, into, into kind of, yeah, more forgiveness. You know. mm -hmm. Well, we're, we're going to be having to take a break shortly, um, so I, I would like to uh, explore the, the idea not only of telepathy but of intuition and the connection between them when we get back. If you've just joined us, we are speaking with Timothy Wiley, the author of The Heliangs Proposition, and uh, we'll be right back after these words from our sponsor. Miriam Knight is the founder and publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital magazine and website at ncreview.com. For 15 years, Miriam's Beat has been covering the thinkers, books, and films inspiring 
Conscious evolution towards greater health, happiness, empowerment, compassion, and connection. Browse the thousands of enlightening books, interviews, and videos on ncreview.com. You can connect with Miriam on Facebook or through the website. That's ncreview.com. been trying to get your attention? What will it take for you to start to listen? I'm Miriam Knight and I've interviewed 37 individuals from all walks of life for our book, What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. In it they describe the cosmic two-by-fours that changed their lives and their answers may make you rethink your own ideas about the nature of reality. Available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, or ask for it at your local bookstore. What wags the world? Tales of conscious awakening. Wiley about his book, The Heliang's Proposition. I'm Miriam Knight, and we were speaking before the break about the notion of telepathy, and I'm wondering if this is part of the sort of wave of um, intuitive awakenings that we are seeing on the planet. Certainly, I'm seeing them reflected in all of the books I'm getting for review. What do you think, Timothy? Well, yes, I, yes, of course, I think it is. I mean, there's there's so many things coming together at the same time. Um, you know, it's easy to, to focus on the more negative things. You know, like uh, you know the state of the water, or the state of the ouch, my little just floored at me. Um, the state of the you know the state of the environment. You know, looks entirely negative. But of course, as all things in the universe, there's a great balance to it. And if you look at the spiritual aspect of it, it's looking tremendously positive on many, many, many levels. I mean, on one of the most difficult levels to confront, and that is what's happening in the Middle East at the moment, the real spiritual subtext of that, which is much more important than what's really going on, is that more and more people are having the freedom to make their own choices rather than being suppressed by... Um, you know, by a very cruel governmental system or whatever. Well, either having the freedom or demanding it. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, yes, it's a reciprocal thing, of course. The more freedom you have, the more you want. You know, <laughs> everything else is censorship at that point. You know, so, yes. and because it's very, very important. I mean, you know, we're, we're really here as individuals to know who we are, to understand ourselves, to live out a life that we can really kind of, you know, see us, understand ourselves at, the, at our worst and also at our best. Because when we die and move on, you know, we have this uh, get together with our angels and our lives are repaid and we have a chance to, you know, experience uh, perhaps some of the things uh, that, that we've done, both positive and negative, but from the other person's point of view, 
you know, we have a very full idea of what life is, you know, what, what our life has come to mean. So I think it's, uh, in a sense, of the enormous change that's going on. And it, it's reflected, you know, in things like the, the change of uh, understanding towards um, gay marriage, for instance. I mean, if you think about it, that's it. Ten years that's taken, really. I mean, I know people have been working on it for ages, but in terms of the incredible change in public sentiment, and of course, people predicted that this would happen, especially with the Internet and everything. But, you know, things would change far, far quicker. And um, so really, we're going to have to basically develop much more spiritual muscle in order to really cope with the, the speed of the change, because it is... For many people, it's really quite bewildering. Um, that, I think that's one of the reasons why people like me write our books. They say, okay, you know, it's safe out here. You know, <laughs> We've been doing this for some years. It's okay. You know, it's just going to get richer. What you think is looking awful is actually something in transformation. It's a birth process. It's a bit of a yeah. cliche, but that's really what's going on. Yes, birth is often messy. Uh, a thought came to me as you were speaking about um, this time uh, in the 60s, uh, the use of what they call entheogens or, or interesting uh, uh, herbal substances like LSD and peyote and, and ayahuasca and so on was very um, popular and uh, much less regulated. And it occurred to me that the, the current relaxation of laws on marijuana and, uh, you know, it may lead to, to other substances could also give an additional impetus to um, the development of independent relationships directly with the divinity and, and with uh, other dimensions. Do you think that's a possibility? Well, I, <laughs> uh, I certainly hope so. Um, yes, of course, I think it's a, a tremendous possibility. And I don't know, I just um, actually haven't finished reading it yet, uh, but in the New Yorker this month or perhaps last, no, this, uh, this week or last week, there's a long, long article on entheogens. Um, which I've never seen before. I've never seen a serious magazine take it on in such a serious way. But it's even more interesting because entheogens have been around, you know, for the last um, couple of years or three years because they're now using them uh, to to help the um, the guys who come back from the wars. They've been very helpful. Two or three of them are enormously helpful. But, um, so it's generally seen in a kind of medical sense or in a scientific sense. But what is interesting about this long, long, long article are these very serious scientists are talking about the spiritual aspects of, the, of, of, uh, of these substances, psilocybin especially. Um, and they've been redoing tests that we were doing back in the 60s. Uh, if you probably remember, the very famous one in which um, I think it was psilocybin was given to um, a group of, uh, of people, uh, and it was, a, it was a double blind test. So I think ten people got the suicide, and ten people got the, um, the substitute. And the people got the suicide, and they had the most wonderful, wonderful spiritual experiences. And of course, all this was suppressed, you know, when it all went mm -hmm. crazy in the, in the late sixties. Um, yes. So you're quite right. There is a rebirth of interest in these substances. 
And personally, I mean, I have used them basically, I hope wisely, all my life. Uh, because for me, I find that what they allowed me was to go to places and experience situations that I would be unable to experience in, in real time, in real life, because they would be too, too catastrophic or too, too ecstatic or whatever. So they allow the individual to have these extreme experiences without harming anybody or harming themselves. I think they're enormously valuable and, and um, many, many, many levels. And yes, I think over the next 10 years or so, I think we're going to see a rebirth of, uh, of people using them wisely and intelligently. You, you mentioned um, communicating with angels, um, and obviously you've written um, a whole series of books about angels. What, what is an angel? An angel is, uh, well, let me first give the groundwork for where the angels exist. You can basically break the, the universe down into two enormously broad sectors. One is the, the universe that we can see and touch, which you might call the sort of the, the, the physical uh, nuts and bolts universe. But, but there is also an entire universe that is contacted through our imagination, which we call the inner world. I mean, that's submitted to anybody who meditates. So that the inner world, now, the inner worlds are basically the worlds of the angels, as the outer worlds, the worlds of us and extraterrestrials and, you know, whatever, um, are the worlds of, of, uh, of the beings that the angels basically serve. It's an interesting setup. They basically serve the mortals, because we're basically mortals. We live and die. Angels don't die, right? Angels just go on forever. <laughs> um, well, even the ones who incarnate, you said that some incarnate. Ah, well, that's a whole other story, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, in a sense, of course, nobody dies. Uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, we can, we can get into that in a moment, in a sense. But what are angels? Angels are basically a very a large hierarchy of beings who essentially accompany us as we rise up through a very, very complex stack of life, not exactly lifetimes, because we don't live and die, but we go through these experiences of getting basically more and more finely tuned um, uh-huh. and losing a lot of, you know, the stuff that we've, come, you know, we've brought up as animals with us. We're basically just really intelligent animals at this stage. But because okay. we are intelligent animals and... I think, let's see the dolphins aside for the moment. Let's call us, you know, the top of the pyramid. You know, we <laughs> we'll talk about the fine-tuning in just a moment, Timothy. We need to take another break, and we're speaking with Timothy Wiley about the Yang's proposition, and we'll be right back. trying to get your attention? What will it take for you to start to listen? 
I'm Miriam Knight, and I've interviewed 37 individuals from all walks of life for our book, What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. In it, they describe the cosmic two-by-fours that changed their lives, and their answers may make you rethink your own ideas about the nature of reality. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, or ask for it at your local bookstore. What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. Miriam Knight is the founder and publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital magazine and website at ncreview.com. For 15 years, Miriam's Beat has been covering the thinkers, books, and films inspiring conscious evolution towards greater health, happiness, empowerment, compassion, and connection. Browse the thousands of enlightening books, interviews, and videos on ncreview.com. You can connect with Miriam on Facebook or through the website. That's ncreview.com. I'm Miriam Knight speaking with Timothy Wiley about his book, The Heliang's Proposition. So before the break, we were talking about angels, and I wanted to ask you about hierarchies. Um, you have something in the book called Ma, the multiverse authority, which uh, kind of sets the stage for this whole hierarchy of beings from uh, humans to angels. Can you go into that a bit, Timothy? Yes. Um, yeah, we seem to, I think, have a bit of an aversion to the idea of hierarchies because we've, we're so used to uh, people at the top not being worthy of being at the top. Uh, so we kind, of, <laughs> we kind of steer away from them. Um, but the thing about angels is that they don't have the same level of freedom of choice as we do. Right, they're really they're created for the functions that they take on. So, you know, an angel might take on a particular function, for instance, the ones that I'm basically in contact with are observing angels, observing seraphim, right? Um, now, that, that's their function. They're great at observing. But they're not very good at much else, you know? Um, so what is our function, then? What's that? What is the human's function? Ah, well... Let's go to the, um, the, the normal understanding of the human chakra system. Okay, we have the bottom three chakras, right? And then we, and the top three chakras, and then we have the heart. Okay, the humans are the heart of the issue. In other words, we are, we're part of the third dimension. In other words, the animals and the vegetables and the rocks, you know, are also therefore we're kind of standing on it in a sense. But then also, you know, on the invisible, on the inner world, we get the angels at the fifth chakra, the archangels at the sixth chakra, and the divine at the seventh chakra. So we have the, the inner is kind of feeding down through us, and we, we shape the outer, if you like, as we indeed we do, you know, as all mortals do. You put a mortal on a planet and you start building something, you know, you start cutting down something, you know, we shape our environments. 
and then the more sensitive we are, of course, the more we shape them as accord, in accord with the kind of the overall sort of flow of, of divine information that comes down through us. I mean, we all have uh, our own companion angels, you know, who, you know, who guide us uh, sometimes into situations perhaps that we're not particularly happy with because that's what we need in order to learn. It's all about learning. It's not called a uni- university. Universe, university for nothing. It's a, it's a massive teaching machine, basically. So, when when we when you say learning, all about learning, it's um, not specific lessons. Um, uh, the, the notion of coming to Earth and you know going to a classroom and uh, learning specific lessons is somehow uh, annoying to me. Um, well, yeah. I would rather I would rather kind of a free form university where you set your own curriculum. Is uh, is it a well, set yeah. curriculum or are you inventing it as you go? No, I mean of course one sets one's own. Yes, I mean. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have ways of trapping ourselves in, in other people's curriculums, but obviously in an ideal state, we grow up, you know, to follow our own curriculums and we make our own, we make our own curriculums. But it's not so much we come to learn. I mean, take something, for instance, like the golden rule, you know, and that is, you know, you treat other people the way you want to be treated yourself. Now, that's not so obvious to, you know, uh, an ape, for instance. Um, you know, it's not that obviously quite a lot of people who <laughs> come around completely unaware of the fact that if they do bad things to people, bad things will happen to them. But of course, you know, that's something one learns. That's a learning. It's a valuable learning. And we all learn it in our own ways, or we don't. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have another incarnation in order to pick that one up. And if we don't learn it, then we have another one. You know, so it really is a sort of a refining process. I mean, we, we're coming out of this physical animal, you know, substrate in a sense, and then, you know, we're joined by the spirit. So we're a kind of melange, if you like, of spirit and, 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 you know, and animal. But as we move up into the next realm, of course, we move up as spirit. We leave the animal behind. Wow. Uh, the, the analogy of it moving through the chakras is quite fascinating. Now, you, you said in the book that um, rebellion and violence became part of our psychological DNA. How did that happen? There was, within the angelic realm, within the inner realm, the, the universe is subdivided into these areas, smaller and smaller groups of planets, if you like. They're called systems, basically. We're part of a system of a thousand inhabited or to be inhabited planets, right? And these are looked after, officiated from the inner, inner planes on, um, on, a, on a, a, an inner world, what, what can I call it? They're actually called an architectural sphere because they're made, they're built. They're not, so they're not natural planets in the way that we are. And about 205,000 years ago, five years ago, there was an uprising basically on that relatively junior sort of uh, little bit of uh, 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 you, you call the Earth an experimental planet well yes it is. every, every tenth planet is, they, they call it an experimental planet 
which means that the, the light carriers, the people who seed light onto the planet, are allowed to experiment a little bit from what they've learned from the previous ten planets. So there wasn't, a, you know, this planet was already, uh, you know, fairly experimental. And there's some things they got a little wrong. For instance, they're, they're fairly apologetic about some of the, 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 the bugs that kind of got out of hand, you know. Um, <laughs> that's a sidebar. Um, so, within the, in this rebellion, right, the chief angels basically in charge, right, went into rebellion against Ma, against the multiverse administration, basically, and said, hey, you know, we really think people ought to have more freedom, and by the way, we need more freedom as well, you know, we're being held down, blah, 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 blah. So it's a familiar kind of complaint <laughs> we're seeing a lot of these days. Um, and um, so they went out and they tried to convert everybody in their, in their sort of little local sphere. And they managed to get 37 planets out of the, I think, 620 or 650 planets. You know, they had intelligence, enlightened intelligence enough to make a choice. Anyway, so the, the, the guys who basically look after this planet on the angelic levels all said, hey, yes, okay, we're going to go for it. We're going to get to a rebellion as well. Um, and they did. <laughs> but unfortunately, the multiverse administration also had a response to that, and they did some things, and they basically isolated this world. They isolated all, all this, you know, this particular sector as well, which is why we don't see extraterrestrials coming and going all the time. Which is why people are so unaware of the fact that angels, you know, pretty much part of life. You know, we've been isolated in oh, a couple of hundred thousand years, all for a long time, basically. Well, it's I take it the isolation was not a quarantine if the extraterrestrials were allowed to visit. No, it, it was a quarantine. And there have only been, there have been two, there have been a number of extraterrestrials coming in. Some of them get under the radar. Some of them bully their way in and get thrown out again. Some of them come in very early on to Atlanta, early Lemuria, for instance, a lot of them were lifted off. That was a benign visitation. But on the whole, no, extraterrestrials are discouraged from coming here. And um, you know, that's, why, that's why we don't see them as much as we, we might. I mean, when you think... So is, is this period now, are we in a period now where they're being permitted to come? Yes, yes. Is that, that's breaking down. It's been breaking down over the last 40 or 50 years. But as we know, you know, the intelligence service and everything like that have been sitting on it for so long, you know, and discrediting it and everything. But yes, uh, it is. We're in process. Because another of the things that's happening right now is basically coded as rejoining the galactic community. It's the idea mm -hmm. of being coming back into the family. You see, we were never meant to be isolated. That's not so silly about it. You know, we're always be, we've always been part of the galactic community. It's just so. It's all politics. It's all about politics, absolutely. Well, politics and emotional maturity, because mm. uh, one could query on both sides. One could say, well, you know, no administration likes the rebellion. Okay, you could say, but if you've got a really good, stable uh, administration, how on earth do you get any novelty into it? How do you get change? How do you introduce change into a stable system? And of course, you've got to create somehow, you've got to create friction, you've got to create rebellion, you've got to create, and this leads to the fact that of course, 
that this plant has now become enormously special because we hadn't been we hadn't had mummy and daddy around us all the time telling us what to do and what not to do. We've had to find out for ourselves, and this affords great respect. I'm told, you know, when we move along or when we meet our extraterrestrial friends, you know, it's enormously respected. The fact that we've been able to at least survive for this long without without blowing ourselves up or without, you know, we muddled through. We muscle through, that's exactly it, we did. <laughs> we are, we are. It may look dark at the moment, but it's just a lot of uh, shimmy shammy, you know. So who were the gods of the historical religions? They were a subgroup called the Midway Creatures, um, very interesting. They've been around for about a half million years. They were created here on this, on this world. They, they inhabit a, 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 a zone. What? Uh, we're going to be taking uh, another break, but just finish your thought, Timothy. Yes, they inhabit a zone midway between the um, Earth reality, the Sun reality, and the angelic reality. But they're closer to us than they are the angels. We can't see them, but they're around. So they're still around, the old gods? Oh, yeah, oh, oh, yes, yes. Yeah. Well, is it, uh, shall we have the interval and then, because it's a little more complicated than are they around or not. Oh, well, I, I suspect we're not going to have time to cover that, but um, intriguing. Um, we're going to take our last break, and then we'll be right back with Timothy Wiley talking about the Heliang's proposition. Miriam Knight is the founder and publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital magazine and website at ncreview.com. For 15 years, Miriam's Beat has been covering the thinkers, books, and films inspiring conscious evolution towards greater health, happiness, empowerment, compassion, and connection. Browse the thousands of enlightening books, interviews, and videos on ncreview.com. You can connect with Miriam on Facebook or through the website. That's ncreview.com. Has the universe been trying to get your attention? What will it take for you to start to listen? I'm Miriam Knight, and I've interviewed 37 individuals from all walks of life for our book, What Wags the World, Tales of Conscious Awakening. In it, they describe the cosmic two-by-fours that changed their lives, and their answers may make you rethink your own ideas about the nature of reality. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, or ask for it at your local bookstore. What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening.
Well, before the break, and I am back with Timothy Wiley, um, we were talking about the nature of the gods of the historical religions. And as fascinating a subject as this is, I'm afraid we don't really have time to go into it because of its complexity. But I do commend, um, Timothy, which, which of your books would you suggest people read to, to get a better understanding and perspective of the, the scope of this? I think probably the third book in my Dita series is called The Return of the Rebel Angels. It's the... It's oh. I chose to do a book every 10 years from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s of charting the impact that the, the non-human intelligences were having that we weren't seeing, that we weren't noticing, and doing it in a personal way. And that one, The Return of the Rebel Angels, is a kind of summary of that 30-year journey of discovery. That's probably the best one, I would say, to start with. Okay. Very good. Um, and are you uh, writing another um, book in the series at the moment? Yes, uh, yes. In fact, as you mentioned in the intro, I had this two-year sort of blitz of writing collaboratively, collaboratively with this uh, with this rebel angel, this discarnate rebel angel. We, we have found a way of collaborating, and we wrote these eight books, basically eight volumes of, of autobiography in the two years, and it kind of blew me out. <laughs> And I think they've, they've just accepted number five, so we're sort of moving along. Number four comes out later this year. It's called um, uh, Wisdom of the Wisdom of the Watchers. That's right. But I also should say, well, of course, the Yin Yang's proposition is, is, you know, is a very sort of racy, kind of interesting. Well, as you said, it kind of goes cuts quite deep. Um, and I would hope that he kind of opens people up a little bit to ideas that they might have of where they come from and who they are, you know, on a on a more weird. Well, I was going I was going to ask you that actually because the um, I think that the book is very seminal. It kind of plants uh, notions in your head, and there are resonances with things you might have heard or read over the years. And it's written, uh, it's actually quite cheeky in many places, particularly the right-hand side of the page. Yes, I just got a sense of humor. I think, I mean, if it's not funny, it's probably not true, is the way I look at things. <laughs> <laughs> so, you've, um, you've come a, a long journey on, on this. How... Did you meet your interlocutor, your your the guide with whom you wrote these books? She first met me when I was about two years old, when the bombs were dropping, and I used to leave my little body in fear and horror, and she would comfort me. I didn't know that until I was well, in my 40s, perhaps. I had a near-death experience in my early 30s, in which I met the angels and was healed of what was killing me. And, met some extraterrestrials and blah, blah, blah. So I kind of had a whole process of opening over a long, long period. And then in my 40s, I started to, to be aware of this particular angel, which was different from my own guardian angels. And we started a long period of getting to know each other. You know, when I heard that she was a, a rebel angel, of course, I got spooked down and scared. And then we had a whole thing of having to trust each other, you know, would she take me over, you know, 
And uh, mm-hmm. finally, by the, you know, by maybe ten years ago, we kind of got everything in hand, and we realized we were interested in the same thing. I wanted to try and write a deep understanding of the Lucifer Rebellion, what really happened in there. Right? And she wanted the to Lucifer, story. The Lucifer Rebellion, you say? Uh-huh. Yes, that was the, basically what is, what's called the Lucifer Rebellion, or the, the War in Heaven, as it's generally recorded. Right. Uh, that was what happened 250,000 years ago. Now, you know, she's been on the planet for half a million years, so she's seen a lot of what's been going on. She wanted to tell her story in order to redeem herself, in order to understand what the mistakes she made. And um, I said, okay, if you want to do that, why don't you tell my story from your point of view? So I'm, <laughs> I'm having a, bio, uh, you know, a biography written about me by an angel who's been with me all my life, and in my previous lives, too. Very interesting. A lot of people should try it. That's a bit of a turnaround. Very good. Very cheeky of you to demand that. What, what is the process? Is it like automatic writing, or is it channeling, or what? No, it's like sitting with a friend. It's like sitting with a friend. We don't know where it's going. Do you record it, or do you write it? Hmm? What? Do you record it, or write no. it? No, I sit at the computer. Oh. I sit at the computer, I, I meditate, I make a little invocation, you know, come in, let's get together, I get a little shiver down my spine, we're together. You know, she'll come up with a concept, um, you know, she may come up with a, a sentence, she may come up with a few words, you know, I'll type them down, and uh, she'll say, well, maybe that needs a little bit of, you know, do a bit of research on that or whatever, but basically she, she lets it go, you know stream of consciousness and I, we go and then at the end of the book I <laughs> I read it. <laughs> and was it was it she who inspired the Heliang proposition? No. Not to my knowledge anyway. I've never asked her that. That's an interesting question. I don't think so. I was on a different line then. I was looking at something else. I was looking at sort of um, you know, time travel and things like that. It was Prior to some very deep experiences I had, which were more spiritual than psycho-spiritual, if you like. Mm-hmm. The Heliangs came out of entheogens, I should say that. Uh-huh. And I think I was probably doing an entheogen when I broke it. Well, you know, it's uh, unfortunately the end of our time together. So, Timothy, what is your website? Where do people find out, uh, keep track on, on your latest book? It's very simple. It's just timothywiley.com. T-I-N-O-T-H-Y. Wiley is W-Y-L-L-I-E. You got it. Right. Timothywiley.com. And we've been speaking with Timothy Wiley about the Heliax proposition. Please join me next week when my guest will be Carol Hannum, who will be talking about the Holon method for self-healing. In the meantime, I invite you to visit New Consciousness Review on ncreview.com and subscribe to our exciting multimedia magazine. The spring issue will be out shortly with a great selection of reviews, columns, articles, and interviews. And I'd love to hear your comments. You can contact me through my website, ncreview.com, or on Facebook, slash ncreview. Well, that's our show for today. I want to thank you, Timothy, for joining us. So until next week, I'm Miriam Knight. Be happy, be well, and shine your light in the world.